wanted to take a minute to introduce Dick Foth for some of you who didn't get a chance to meet him on Wednesday. Dick was the president of Bethany College in Santa Cruz for 14 years, a small Assemblies of God liberal arts college. Prior to that, he was a pastor in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, near the University of Illinois campus there, where he was a pastor for 12 years. And in the last three years, Dick and his wife, Ruth, have moved to Washington, D.C. to pursue a very different kind of work from a college presidency or a pastor uh, of a very large church. And they are very much behind the scenes in the lives of many people, uh, many of whom are leaders in the Washington, D.C. area in government, uh, others who are leaders in Caribbean nations, and also he has a quiet work really with uh, people from all over the world. He grew up as a young boy in India. His parents were missionaries, and his first five years were spent in South India. And so there's a real sense of a, a global pull on, on the heart of Dick Foth. One of the things I've enjoyed most about getting to know Dick, it's only been about four years since I've gotten to know him, is that he takes, in my mind, he takes very profound truths taught from the scriptures and finds ways of communicating them that uh, not only are fresh and new for me, but seem to have the ability to impact me personally at at a deep level. Uh, One of the things I've appreciated uh, about him and learned or trying to learn from him as well is how important it is to take a truth and to present it in a way, the way Jesus did, He told stories, stories that were not shallow or simplistic, but they also were not complex. They were deep and profound. And I I have found in in a large measure that uh, God has used Dick Foth in my life personally to impact me with the truths of Jesus Christ through the story and through the uh, uh, sharing of truth that he does in his teaching. So let's welcome again Mr. Dick Foth. Thank you. Good morning. It's great to be here again in chapel with you. I, uh, I'd like to thank President Winter and Bart Tarman and the other administrators and faculty members and staff folks and you in particular for the gracious reception and kindness to me on this campus. I feel very uh, embraced in coming here and so loving that I like coming back. So thank you for the privilege of being here again. I was telling somebody earlier I feel like that fellow who was, who was a minister was standing up to speak in Sunday morning service and he said, I, you know, I just have so much stuff, I, I just hardly know where to begin. And a little kid sitting in the front row said, well, you know, why don't you start somewhere near the end? And uh, I'm a little like that this morning. I had been invited to this dorm lounge at the University of Illinois. I was 25 years old and a, a young pastor of maybe two dozen college students in this little congregation and a couple of married couples. And uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship had asked me to come to a dorm lounge just to talk for a few moments about Jesus to some of the students at the university. So I did that. I went for 15 minutes and just talked to them. Talked about the character of God and his purposes in the world and all of that. And uh, I got done. And in that setting, you always have to ask for questions. You just don't stop and walk away. And so I I said, any questions after I described this gracious God who loves us and wants his best for our lives and wants us to have focus and meaning and all that kind of stuff. 
I said, any questions? And a kid in the back raised his hand. I said, yes, sir. He said, Mr. Foth? I said, yes, and he sent me to hell. I said, boy, I, you know, I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. I... Next question. And it caught me off guard because I want people to like me. And this guy was cussing me. And I said, next question. And this was during the Vietnam War. And the next young man said, uh, what kind of gall do you have walking in here talking about a God who cares for us, who is gracious and kind, when we got guys being chewed up like cannon fodder in Vietnam, babies are being eaten by rats in the ghettos of Chicago, we got people starving to death in the sub-Sahara, and you're talking about a God who cares. What kind of a sadistic God is this? And I was really, you know, I was backpedaling, you know, so you say stuff like, good question, when you don't know what to say, you know, stuff like that. And I'm stalling, I'm saying, Lord, help me answer this kid. They said, you know, if I were to look around at the world and see all of the wars and all of the strife and the pain and the senselessness and the people getting shot just as guys drive by, and I would say, boy, if God's doing that, he is cruel and sadistic. But when I read this God in this scripture, whoever's doing that isn't this God. This God expresses himself in a very different way. And when you start reading especially as you read the Gospels. But you can start anywhere. Start in the Old Testament. And, and you can see this God who is all-powerful, who is infinite, reaching out to his creations, to his creatures, if you will, to us, saying, I want fellowship with you. It's not good for man to be alone. That's where we started on Wednesday when I said there are two things I'd like to speak to. One is the simplicity of the good news about Jesus, and the other is perspective on life. He says, it isn't good for man to be alone. And as you read the text, you find that he means, I want him to be in fellowship with me, so he's not alone. And I want him to connect with his peers, so he's not alone. And as you read that, you start finding out about this God. And the question the kid asked in that dorm lounge is the question that I still have. And I'm 54 and a half years old. I've been around the sun 54 times, 54 and a half times. Coming up on 55. See, and when you go around the sun that many times, stuff starts moving around. You know, 14 pounds per square inch and stuff falls out and shifts and you're trying to get it back and that's just how it is. But the question that challenges me and invigorates me is what kind of a God is this that knows me and wants me to know him? His essential name in the Old Testament is I am. Moses stands in front of this burning bush. Remember that story in the Old Testament? Moses is this 80-year-old guy who killed a guy in Egypt. And he's wanted for murder down there. And he comes and stands in front of this bush that's burning in the desert. Now, bushes spontaneously combust, I understand, in arid regions. But this was a different bush. It wasn't burned up, and it was a talking bush. And so, you know, he's over there, and here's this old guy talking to a bush. You know, and the voice is saying, I want you to go set my people free. I mean, you can read it in Exodus. And he doesn't want to go. He's wanted for murder. His picture's in every post office in Egypt. You know, he doesn't want to go there. And he says, who is this? Which God is this? You know, is this the mountain God or the thunder God or the cactus God or the Nile God? Which God is this? And God says to him, my name is I am that I am. And I'm saying, what kind of a name is that? I mean, that's, I mean, clearly he's not a Western God because... Because then he'd be, I do that I do. This is, 
this God. I am that, well, we get our value from our performance, don't we? It's how well you do. That's how we rank you. Here is a God who says, my name is I am. I am the God who creates. I am the God who protects. I am the God who redeems. I am the God who goes before you. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the beginning. I am the end. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. I am living water. I am living bread. You know, that God. I am that I am is the most stable person in the universe. You want to be mature? You want to be stable? You want to be steady when everything else is going up in smoke? Get to know I am. It is the most secure name in the universe. But if I were this God, and I were to say, how can I communicate with these human beings in a way they can understand? And since I'm so powerful, I'm the God who speaks galaxies into existence, how, how do I communicate with them in a way that doesn't scare their socks off? How, how can I come to them in a way that won't frighten them to death when I'm so powerful? And he, and he did this thing. He created this act. He expressed himself according to this scripture in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's crazy. It's nuts. What? What kind of a deal is that? You say, no, you're being disrespectful. No, I'm telling you. It's craziness. Why would a God who could do it any way he wants express himself by showing up as a baby in a little podunk town, in a little country that no self-respecting Roman soldier wants to have duty in? Why would he do that? Why would he put him in an environment that was poor? Why would he put him, why would he do that? Why would he have him be misunderstood? Why would he have him be born of a young woman who wasn't married yet? Why would he have him die a state-sanctioned criminal's death? Why would he do that? And I'm sitting with my little pea brain saying, I, if I could figure this out, I, maybe, maybe one reason is that he wants to identify with anywhere we are or might go. There's nobody who can say to him, you don't understand what it's like to be scandalized. There's no one on the planet who can say to him, you don't know what it's like to be poor. There's no one on the planet who can say, you don't know what it's like to be part of an ethnic, <coughs> excuse me, ethnic minority that is looked down upon or murdered by the millions in the 20th century. Nobody can say that to this God. But why would he come like a baby? Why would he come in a weak way? I mean, if it was information about him that we needed, he could have just written, Jesus is Lord. Jesus saves in the northern lights and let it flash for 2,000 years and the people in the northern hemisphere pick it up, they, you know, get it around, you know, Jesus is Lord. And, you know, kind of. Why would he come in baby shape? I don't know anybody here who's afraid of a baby. If somebody walked in here with a baby, people wouldn't run screaming from the room. If somebody walked in here with a baby and I'm talking and trying to say profound things, you would be looking at the baby. I know, I've had it happen. It's very disconcerting. <laughs> he comes in this attractive, vulnerable way. This God who is most powerful says, let me show you the essence of my character by unzipping my soul and coming in this person, in baby, carpenter, Jewish shape. And I'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us.
one of the most profound pictures I ever saw was a centerfold in a youth magazine. It was a nude. It was a baby just born. This baby was there, four-color, double-page spread, squalling on the page, naked as a jaybird, umbilical cord still attached. And babies, when they're just born, we have four children, two grandchildren, trust me. I know that the moms say, aren't they beautiful? I'm telling you, it's scary. When, you know, they're like this and they're purple and blue and all kinds, they got yuck all over them. And this baby had yuck all over them, squalling on the page. And printed across the bottom of the page, it said, Emmanuel, God with us. And I said, whoa. I mean, it, it, it came off the page and hit me in the forehead. I mean, it was so powerful. And I'm saying, no, no, that's not the way. You, you're God. You didn't come that You were born wrapped in swaddling clothes. You didn't come naked like I came all crunched down, squished and out the birth canal. I didn't know. And God says, no, I will identify with the very first trauma you ever had called birth. And we'll just go from there. The pain is the mother's, but the risk is the child's. And he says, that's the way I'll come. But I say, okay, so he understands my needs. He's an empathetic God. We're told that more people are going to vote for Bill Clinton because he's empathetic than for Bob Dole because he doesn't give that. And we're a people who like empathy. And we want a God who understands where we are. At least I do. I want a God who knows me. But just having empathy isn't enough. I'm saying to this God, okay, if you're empathetic, what are you doing here? Like that kid was saying to me, where is God when they're slaughtering each other over there? What's the deal here? What God did was to make human beings like you and like me, like I am, to be able to choose how we treat ourselves and how we treat each other and how we treat him. And that's why you have Vietnams and that's why you have Iran and Iraq and that's why you have the Sub-Sahara and that's why you have the ghettos and other things. But what's his mission in the world? I read to you two passages about this God who expresses himself fully in his unique son, Jesus. When Jesus went to Nazareth, this is Luke, the fourth chapter, the 16th verse, he, Jesus went back to his hometown where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue and was his custom, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And he's reading something a guy wrote hundreds of years before. Hundreds of years before. And this is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. What he's saying is, God's heart is for the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. <clears throat> excuse me, for the prisoners. People who are trapped either physically trapped, emotionally trapped, spiritually, any kind of prisoners. At least that's how I read it. And when I read the stories about the kind of people he helps, people are trapped all different kinds of ways. And recovery of the sight for the blind, for people who can't see clearly. I ask the Lord every once in a while, Lord, give me a baptism of clear seeing. Now, I'm nearsighted physically. If I took off these glasses, I'd be legally blind, you know. So I'm just illegal and I can see you, you know. But perspective has to do with seeing clearly. It has to do with seeing the world and seeing ourselves and seeing him 
and saying, aha, that's what that's about. To release the oppressed, to unlock people's doors and let them, wouldn't it be a kick in the head to go all over the world and set people free? Wouldn't it be wonderful here in Santa Barbara to set people free? Well, not because I'm so smart or so cute or have a 200 IQ. I know a lot of people who are smart and cute and have 200 IQs and they're trapped. But Jesus is the person who sets people free because it's the character of God to unlock your door and let you out to follow him and to know him and to walk with each other and to love him and to love each other. So when people come to Jesus and say, what's the very most important thing I need to know? And he says, this is the most important thing you need to know about life. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On those two things, everything else hangs. Everything else is subsumed under that. I can give you a hundred laws but that statement, and we say, okay, I got that. Love God, love you. That's cool. Let's go on to the real stuff. That is the real stuff. It's when I start doing that, that when I walk through this college and I am adequately prepared and I learn some stuff and I have some skills and I catch a vision, that I understand that the essential thing, not the easiest thing, but the essential thing I do in my life is to love God and love you. And as I do that, and as I become a professional person, or I learn my craft, and I walk into the marketplace, there will be a quality about my life that is so profound, that is so different, that it's light in a dark place. That somebody, that when somebody runs over me, I don't smack them, but I forgive them. Oh, I want to smack them, you know. But I'm so grateful that when I need to be smacked, God didn't smack me. But he took my junk and he said, that junk that is trapping you, why don't you let me help you with that? Because you're designed to know me and to know each other and to be free of that junk. And then you hear Paul. Paul says it this way. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. I live in a city where people are always positioning themselves. Washington, D.C., in the power circles of Washington, D.C., in the at least in the obvious power circles of Washington, D.C., people are always looking for an edge in any business or political community in any academic setting, in any setting where business, in, in any enterprise, there is this great tendency to position ourselves, to have the upper hand, to have one thing on the next guy. And here is this God who has everything. And Jesus says, I have it all. I could keep it to myself. But what I will do is because it's my nature to care for you, I will let it go and come and walk with you for 33 years and take the hit with you. I said it very simply, I think, the other day. Maybe too simply, but I like it. I'll leave my place 
I'll come to your place. I'll take your place. I'll take the hit. Then we'll go to my place. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He was one of us. I don't understand that. People say, can you explain that? Theologians have spent centuries trying to get that very God of very God, very man. How do you, you know, I don't get it. It's a mystery. That's what scripture says. It's a mystery. But when I start looking for truth, and when I start opening myself to him, powerful things happen. And I find that he's an affirming God. He comes and he says, I like you. And when you grew up like I did in Oakland, California, and I was a stutterer, and sometimes I still stutter when I get tired. And when you stutter, you feel like an idiot. Because if you can't speak well, people think you're dumb. I spent half my life with people looking me in the mouth. You know, one of those things. And he comes to me and he says, Dick, I don't care if you can't speak well. I like you. To have somebody say, I like you, is a powerful unlocking of your door. I came to unlock the doors of the oppressed, to set them free. I was in a small group one time in St. Louis, the Holiday Inn. They were having a conference on how to do small groups. And they spent the morning talking about history. We were in these groups of four, five, or six. And we came to the afternoon. They said, now what we'd like you to do, like you to do on the basis of your history is we'd like you to form a group of five people and put a chair here and then four other chairs here. And the, and the person, one person will sit in that chair in the empty, empty chair at the end of the horseshoe. And in that chair, when that person sits there, each of the other four, on the basis of what you've learned this morning, we want you to affirm that person one of three ways. Either by saying a quality that you see about them that's positive, or in terms of a color, I see you as bright orange or deep blue, you're solid. Or, or in terms of an animal, I see you as a lion or a you know, positive. Like. The first person to sit there was a 19-year-old boy and this girl, this young woman was 19, and she looked at him and said, I see you as a dog. And he said, he said, thanks a lot. She said, no, no, no. I have a golden cocker spaniel at home. He's got brown eyes and your eyes are just like his. And I love my dog. I just love to hold my dog and just pet him. He said, this is good. I like this. <laughs> Next person who was in the chair was a 28-year-old director of Christian education from a, from a Catholic church in Illinois, and she had gotten a bad critique after her first year. She was a chain smoker. She was just puffing one cigarette after another, and, just, and she didn't want to be there. She was grousing, complaining, saying, this is stupid, I've been to zillions of these things. She sat in the chair, and the same girl said to her, I see you as the color of your dress. Her dress was kind of a silky, mottled, brown and orangey and white. It was, it was quite pretty. I can't describe it very well. But, and she said... Uh, your dress reminds me of a fire in my fireplace at home in Rockford, Illinois. And I'd like to take you with me to my home in Rockford. And I'd like to sit in front of the fireplace on a snowy winter's night and drink hot chocolate and eat popcorn and just get to know you. And that woman, the bitter woman, took her cigarette out of her mouth and put it down on the tile floor. And she said, say that again. And this young woman said, I'd like to take you to my house on a snowy winter's night in Rockford, Illinois, and sit in front of the fireplace and drink hot chocolate and eat popcorn and just get to know you. And by the time she finished, tears were streaming down that young woman's face. And she said, nobody in my whole life 
has ever wanted to spend an hour with me in front of the fire before just to get to know me. And I saw her transformed. I saw her door unlocked and she came out into life. And so Jesus comes as a baby and he walks as a man. And when people want to know him, he doesn't say, if you can guess who I am, then you can be part of the club. <laughs> he just says, come on, I'll show you. Let's go do some stuff. And they walk with him. And then he starts saying these radical things, like, uh, I'm going to have to die. And it said when he started saying things like that, people kind of started peeling off because they didn't mind hanging out with Jesus, you know. And those miracle things, and a free lunch once in a while, that was good. <laughs> but this dying thing, nobody wants to do that. At least nobody who's sane really wants to. You know, they, they don't want to do that. And so here you have him coming vulnerably as a baby. And then he goes to this place called the cross and he dies and Paul the Apostle Paul in writing to the Corinthians in writing to this these people who live in this get downtown I mean if you wanted to think you went to Athens if you wanted to boogie you went to Corinth and he writes to these people who love life and he says let me tell you something about life and they say good we're into life he says the place you find life is at the cross now, these people knew about crosses. This was the instrument that Romans used for killing people they didn't like. Pax Romana, as two guys are arguing on the street corner, Roman peace was go spear them both and it's quiet again. Kind of one of those deals. Now, there were other ways, but they, that was one of the methods. And so insurrectionists are people that were found wanting. They went through these trial procedures and they, they hung them out there. And they didn't nail them up most of the time. They tied them up and... And they died over time, and they suffocated from their own body weight, and buzzards came and sat on the cross pieces and ate the flesh off it. So these Corinthians knew about crosses. And this Jewish guy comes in and says, the place you want to find about real living is the cross. And these guys are saying, this guy's sick. That's a sick thing. And Paul in 1 Corinthians says, people who don't understand say the cross is stupid. It's a stupid thing. I mean, well, just up until recently, I understand that the gas chamber was the instrument of capital punishment here in California. Is that correct? What if I came here and said, you know, I've come here from Washington and I'd like just to introduce you to life. And in the bookstore afterwards, I've brought some little symbols that you can just wear like you wear crosses around your neck because a lot of you have crosses and little lapel things. And I said, and we've just done a little kind of gold gas chamber that we've done and we've got it on a, and you can just go buy them, 250 special price for you guys because you're students. And, and then you can wear it when you go to work. And you walk into where you're working and they say, what, what, what is that you're wearing, John? Oh, that's a, it's a gas chamber. Oh. You're kind of, you're an anti-capitalist <clears throat> punishment guy. Say, so, you no, know, it's, a, it's a symbol of my faith. And they're going, whoa, okay. We sing about it, you know. We go to church and sing at the gas chamber, at the gas chamber where I first saw the light. They're saying, whoa. That's weird. That's bizarre. No wonder people ran away. Why? What, what is that deal all about? Let me tell you what the cross is about as I understand it. And I'll just say this in five minutes. The junk that I'm carrying, I can't get rid of by myself. I tried. And he says, let me do that for you. He affirms my person and confronts my issues. I live in a culture that tends to confront my person. If I do something wrong, they say, you're an idiot. Out of here. Here's a God who says, I never designed you to be an idiot. I designed you to walk with me. And it's only a fool who says there's no God. That's what I designed you for. 
But you've got these challenges. As smart as you are, as good as you try to be, your very best act will not get you into heaven because I'm a holy God. And I'm saying, I don't understand this. And he says, well, I'll show you and I'll, I'll call his name Jesus. And he comes. And at least these three things happened at the cross. And here is Paul who says, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who unlocks your door, is Lord. The cross is an expression of the character of God. He says, I am the God who will come to be like you, and I am the God who will take your hit. And here's the deal. He makes a covenant with us. He said, here's the deal. I'd like you to live at my house forever. I'd like to walk with you on the planet. But there's a price to be paid, and I will pay it. I will pay it. And there are two kinds of contracts. One is both of us can sign off on it, like a house contract, you know, we both sign. Or the other is a unilateral royal contract. And that is where just the king signs off. He makes the terms, he signs off. And this is what God says to us here. He says, here's the deal. I'll walk with you, I'll love you, I'll take the hit, you'll go to my place. And I do it all, you just respond, you just recognize, you believe that I am. And trust me. And you can accept that, you can accept those terms, or you can reject those terms, but you cannot alter those terms. That's the deal. And the cross is a place where in my own desire to be my own God, I say to him, I can't stand your rightness. And I take him, I throw him on the cross, and I say, there, take that. That'll show you. And he says, fine. If that's the way it's going to be, that's the way I'll love you. Father, forgive them because they don't understand. What is, what kind of a God is this? Who is this God that takes the very worst thing I can do to him, turns it around and loves me with it? What he's saying in that culture at that time, he said, I will come to the place that is the symbol for the most hateful, sadistic kind of act in the world. And I will go through it. I'll come to the place of your death, the place that you're dying today. And I will turn it inside out. I will take the worst thing that ever happened to you. Put it on like a glove. And love you with it. And when I got the letter from my father saying he was leaving my mom after 29 years of marriage. And I was four months married. And I went in my bedroom and I lay on the bed and sobbed. And said, how could they do this to me? They weren't doing it to me. It was happening to each other. But I was this kid still. I was still a kid. I was 21. It took me a long time to be able to walk through that. But he took that thing, this God, turned it around and helped me understand more. He helped me walk with it. This God takes the killing thing in your life and makes it a thing of life. That's how it is. And as I grow to be like him in his vulnerability, in his self-revelation, in his mission, this is his mission. I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What's the joy? It's us. We're his joy. He says, I see those kids at Westmont. I see Foth, that bald-headed guy. He's my joy. 
I'll go through this to set him free so he can live with me forever. I don't get it. I, I confess to you, I don't understand, but I really like it. Two things and it's true. One thing. The whole point, the point of God revealing himself in Jesus is to unlock the doors, take the killing things and make them give life, open blinded eyes, have people know him and love him and know each other and love each other and walk together. But he says, here's the deal, give me all your junk and I'll give you all of my righteousness. That's the trade. You'll never get a better deal than that. Give me all your stuff. I'll give you all my righteousness, all my glory. And I will make you ambassadors of reconciliation. I work with ambassadors. And ambassadors have one role. That is to represent their nations in this country. They come with the full authority of the government they represent. And he says to you, I would like you to be ambassadors for me in Santa Barbara, around the world. As you train, as you are trained, and as you craft your skills, and as you, as you get educated and learn and go out into the world. I want you to be ambassadors of one thing. Jesus Christ and his message of reconciliation. That you're not designed to hate each other. You're designed to love him and love each other. I close with this story. Those of you who are seniors, you heard it before, you're going to hear it again. Sitting in my office near the University of Illinois, the telephone rang. Picked it up and it was a kid from Phi Gamma Delta. At that time, that particular fraternity was the raunchiest fraternity house at the University of Illinois. They'd gotten in big trouble for some stuff they did. They would sandbag their parking lot every spring, have an orgy called Fiji Island. This kid said, somebody came through our house and told us about this Jesus a few weeks ago, and, but they left and we don't have anybody to talk to us about him. Could you talk to us about him? And I said, sure, where, where are we to do that? He said, just come over here to the fraternity house and we'll just meet in the beer room here. And we'll just... So we went over there and sat down. It didn't smell too good, but we were there and we were... And we talked. And, and we read the Gospels. And we found out about this God who makes himself vulnerable. About eight months later, telephone rings at my house. Or at my office. And I pick it up and it's an older gentleman. And he said, you don't know me, but you know my son Phil from Fiji House. I said, oh yeah. He said, he's radically changed the last eight months, Mr. Phil. I said, yes, sir. He said, uh, he says it's God, Mr. Phil. I said, yes, sir. He said, what do you say? I said, uh, I say it's God. He said, I want to talk to you. And he had this edge in his voice, and I thought, oh, man. Because I'm not a confrontative kind of person. I just like to be liked, and, you know, just a lover kind of guy. He said, I want you to come to my house for dinner. So I went to his house for dinner, and I was so nervous. Because what I haven't told you about him is that he was a full professor of journalism at the University of Illinois. He'd won the Pulitzer Prize in 1963. He was a Harvard fellow, which means he's real smart. And he was a political cartoonist for the Boston Globe. And here I am, this young preacher type guy. And a stutterer. I still stuttered. And I'm driving to his house. And I'm saying, what's the deal here? Why didn't you have like the college president go or something? And scripture says he'll take the foolish things to confound the wise. The weak to confound the strong. And it's almost as though God has a sense of humor. He says, why don't we, why don't we take the stutterer here and, and stick him over here with the Pulitzer Prize winning author. And let's see how that works. <laughs> I'm told you, this is crazy stuff. This is crazy. And it's life. This is radically different than how I think. 
We went there, we had dinner, we came out, we sat down. He had had some real difficulties with his son over the years. His son's generation had trashed the campus, spit on the values this man stood for. He said, tell me about this God that, that he keeps talking about. And I started telling him about I am that I am, the one who heals, the one who redeems. For about 30 minutes I did that. And finally said, uh, you know, he was just listening. And I knew I needed to ask him, do you want to know this God? But I was so scared because he's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. Finally I said, uh, Gene, would you, uh, would you like to uh, know this God? He said, yeah, I would. I said, you would. He said, yeah, how do I do that? I said, why don't you just follow me out loud in prayer? Why don't we just talk to this one we can't see? And so I said, dear God, he said, dear God, you know me like the back of your hand. You know me like the back of your hand. This is Gene. This is Gene. You know my rage. You know my rage. You know my anger. You know my anger. You know my joys and my dreams. You know my joys and my dreams. If you can raise Jesus from the dead, you can change my life. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Make me a new guy. Make me a new guy. Amen. Amen. Isn't the word so much the heart and I turned to him to look at him say something and, and tears were streaming down his face and he was looking at his boy and he got up and he started toward his son and they met right in front of me and threw their arms around each other and just sobbed and I'm watching this you know and pretty soon he pushes his boy away and he says Dick do you understand what's happening here tonight <laughs> he said I think I do Gene but why don't you tell me he said I believe in the here the Pulitzer Prize winner came out. He said, I believe that 2,000 years ago, God gave his son to me. But tonight, my son gave me God. And I started, boy, I get it, I'm crying, I'm all over. <laughs> Ten years ago, this past May, that man went to be with Jesus. And his son today is a counselor in Richmond, Virginia. It's a long way from Fiji House at the University of Illinois to being a counselor in Richmond, Virginia. And it's a long way from a Pulitzer Prize to heaven. But this Jesus, the I am that I am, who comes in baby shape, dies in criminal shape, walks in carpenter shape, loves me and takes the hit and says, why don't we journey together? That's why I came to Westmont. Hope that's why you came to Westmont. Let's keep walking together, shall we? God bless.